Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. It has been a crazy, crazy long week. Um, it's not over yet. Um, had a great time at the Dispatch Meetup in New York. Really just a edifying, wonderful um, experience to meet all these people who really support what we're doing and are grateful for it. Today, I'm, I have my debut on Chris Wallace's new show. We're going to record it um, early this evening or late this afternoon. And um, um, as you can probably tell, my, my brain is still pretty fuzzy. So hopefully this process will wake me up and get me going. Um, about the debate itself, I think one of the first things you have to just sort of say is that it's just not that important and is going to be forgotten much like those midterm elections. We can put them both in the, you know, there are these certain events that happen in the course of a campaign that are the news peg for hundreds of thousands of words over many days and then, or weeks or months, and then they happen and they're pretty much um, forgotten within 48 to 72 hours. I personally think that the midterm election, that not midterm elections, there were off year elections, right? The, the elections on Tuesday, um, with the exception of the issue of abortion, which obviously is still a live issue um, and consequential issue. I basically think those elections were largely meaningless. Um, uh, you know, what's his face? Bashir in Kentucky comes from a sort of Kentucky state political dynasty. He's popular. He ran on a Kentucky first platform um, in a kind of sui generis state. You know, I saw, I've seen places where Biden is, the Biden team is taking some credit for it. Although their argument isn't that he has, deserves positive credit for it, right? It's because he didn't campaign for Bashir. Bashir didn't mention his name at all, as far as I know. He really tried to keep it a local race, but the Biden spin is, well, look, they, um, they ran ads linking Bashir with Biden, they being the Republicans. Um, they spent $200 million trying to make it a vote for Biden, a vote for Bashir as a vote for Biden kind of campaign, and it didn't work. So therefore, Biden deserves some credit. I get the point, and the only way that makes any sense at all is simply against the backdrop of the Siena New York Times polls that really did freak everybody out last week, you know, and as I said somewhere, you know, my, my theory about why it really freaked people out um, had more to do, I mean, the numbers are bad in it for Biden, for sure. Um, 
But I think the real reason it freaked people out is that because it was basically a poll of battleground states, which are going to decide the election, um, it had the psychological effect of reminding a lot of people that national polls aren't what matters. It's the electoral college. National results really aren't what matters. It's the electoral college. And um, Trump has a very good chance of picking the lock again on the electoral college. I think there is zero chance of Trump winning the popular vote if he's the nominee. Um, but could he win enough votes in three or four of those seven states where the election is going to be decided? Yeah. And so I think the psychological effect of that, those polls was to sort of be, and again, I'm repeating a line I said elsewhere, but, um, it was sort of like, you know, a show me where on the doll, uh, the 2016 elections touched you moment. Um, because it just, it was this PTSD, like, holy crap, you know, we've been telling us ourselves a story about Biden that, um, just doesn't hold water. And it's not just about the electoral college stuff, right? You know, then all the other sort of despondency, um, panic cascade kind of stuff starts to pour in and, you know, Biden's not getting any younger, yada, yada, yada. I still find, and I know I've made this point before, but like, I still find it very frustrating when I hear people talk about the age issue because they'll say, you know, what hypocrites Republicans are that, you know, Trump is older than Biden was in 2020 and he's almost 80 himself and he's, you know, he's old too. And yet they don't care about Trump's age. And that's because age is a polite euphemism for the, what's really at work here is, is it's, you know, it's cognitive decline, um, or it's physical decline, right? I mean, just Biden moves around, he shuffles like a man his age, right? I mean, he's, he shuffles like an old dude who should be in a sweater. Uh, he doesn't even move as well as Vito Corleone does when he's running around in the orchard with his grandson. People recognize that, right? I mean, it's just like, this is one of these things where it's sort of like the inflation stuff. You can't tell people inflation isn't a problem because you know who's an expert on the prices that they pay at the grocery store and the gas station? The people who buy gas and buy groceries at the grocery store and at the gas station. They, they know what like our normal prices. The way the Biden administration and some of its fans, um, you know, talk about this is like um, David Brooks, uh, which we can talk about in a minute, um, I guess, uh, when he was on here, got a lot of great feedback about that conversation, which um, mildly pleasant, you know, very pleasantly, but mildly surprised by. There was this, uh, you know, he was like, I personally think the economy is doing great. And I get it. Like there is a, there's a, that, that case is to be made. It's just not a political case. If you read The Economist, if you, which I do a lot more of these days, if you read sort of, about other countries' economies, we're doing really well. UK is going back into this sort of stagnation thing. Um, China is heading, it, I think it's on the front page of the Wall Street Journal this morning, is, looks like it's not going to uh, avoid a deflationary spiral, which is not, not good, Bob. We have inflation here, but so do a lot of other places, and we're handling it better. We're doing okay. The economy's doing okay. We're, job creation stuff is, is, is going gangbusters. Wages are going up. All these things are good economic indicators. They just don't 
it doesn't, it still just doesn't feel like a good economy. And part of it is, is like, and I, and I have huge, I, I, I can point my giant phone finger of blame in all directions, but I, I would do it primarily at the left um, of the sort of, you know, uh, uh, inflation doesn't exist crowd, right? You know, there are a lot of conservatives who were wrong about saying inflation's around the corner a lot of times in, in the last 25 years. Believe me, I, I have dear friends who I value, whose opinions I valued on econ economics for years, and they just ended up being wrong often about predicting that this or that thing was going to cause inflation. But being wrong about predicting when inflation's going to come in and saying inflation is no longer a thing are completely different things. It's like, if I predict that California is going to be hit by a giant earthquake next week, I'll probably, I hope, be wrong. That doesn't mean that California won't be hit by a giant earthquake at some point in the future, because there's these faults and people know that the big one or something is coming. It's just, it's, it's a fact. And so anyway, you know, inflation messes with people's heads. And I think inflation on the heels of COVID really has put people off their feet in all sorts of, you know, specific cultural ways, psychological ways that um, people fail to appreciate. And so when you say things like, you know, the, like the, the dumbest single political talking point out there is the rate of increase in inflation is going down. And so therefore, everyone should be happy. You often see people say it in sort of weird way, you know, the inflation rate is decreasing. Yeah, yeah, but, but the underlying numbers are still really, really high, right? And it's sort of like saying, you know, we're in this miserable heat wave. And, um, you know, last week it went from 100 degrees to 105 degrees. And then this week it's going from 105 to 107. So the rate of increase is going down. Therefore, you shouldn't complain about the heat. Um, when in reality, even if the actual inflation was going, I mean, like, even if prices were actually dropping, and in some places they are, they've dropped a little bit, dropping from 107 degrees outside to 102 degrees doesn't all of a sudden make things comfortable, right? And, um, and so you also see versions of this, you know, Paul Krugman, bless his heart, you know, He'll tweet about how he had a tweet a couple of weeks ago where he was talking about how inflation has been fixed. It's no longer a problem. And he shows this chart where the line is going down. And then you look closely and it says, you know, inflation excluding gas, home, rent, food uh, prices. Right. And it's like that's like that's not how normal people view the economy. They view the economy by like how much they're paying for gas and how much they're paying for food and whatnot. And so this, anyway, I didn't mean to go down this long rabbit hole, but like the Bidenomics claim, this claim that like the economy is doing great, I just don't think um, works politically if people themselves don't feel it the same way. And um Anyway, now I can't remember exactly how I got on this, but um, getting back to the, oh, so like just this, this, there's this pie in the sky sort of denial of political reality going on with um, Biden's situation. And so like one of the things you heard a lot of people say after those polls came out last week was, you know, well, 
polling for Obama looked really, really bad in at the at the, at the same time in uh, 2011, and it did. It looked really bad in 2011, and there were people who thought Obama would lose. Maybe I, for all I know, I was one of them. Um, but this is just one of these very annoying kind of like um, habits in politics. It is in no way, shape, or form unique to Democrats or to Biden. Republicans do this every bit as much. But there is this tendency to look back at it, find the precedent at a similar moment in the past and say, this guy was behind the polls and he went on to win, right? Um, we're hearing a lot of similar things in the primary right now, which again, I guess I got, I will get back to about the debate stuff. But like your people say, you know, well, Barack Obama was at 38% and November of 2011 or whatever the number was, and he went on to win. And that's true. But, you know, and you'll hear people say about, you know, primary candidates, you know, that at, at, in November of 2015 or November of 2011 or 2007 or wherever, such and such candidate, Rick Santorum, Mike Huckabee, blah, 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 was behind in the polls and they went on to win. It's true. But in all of those moments in the primaries, other people were behind in the polls, more people were behind in the polls, and they went on to lose. And this idea that like, yeah, if it's, it's, it's like my repeated rant about like my problem with people who talk about reincarnation or have envy for like, you know, why can't we live in ancient Rome kind of stuff or that kind of thing is they always assume that they're going to be a general or a nobleman or a king or a princess when if you're going to just play the numbers of who, if you could be reincarnated a thousand or 10,000 or 5,000 years ago, odds are um, you're going to die before the age of five or um, get hit over the head with a rock by somebody or spend your days working in a field and then um, um, eating out of a communal pot with a bunch of other people where you live with your livestock. And then in your early 30s, uh, you will probably go out in the woods and crap yourself to death right? That's what the average person's life was like in a lot of these periods where people say, oh, I would be a Roman general commanding legions. Uh, no, you, you probably wouldn't unless you, you know, have some special trick um, to game the numbers. Um, and politicians do this all the time where they look back on the past and they pick their what, who they want to be their analog and assume it's true. True story. I don't know if I've ever told this before. You know, my wife, when she worked for Newt Gingrich once, you know, she, and she liked Newt back then. And I don't want to rat her out or get her in any trouble with anybody about, you know, her relationships with clients and all that kind of thing. But, um, uh, you know, she signed up mostly because she wanted to work on a presidential campaign. And um, anyway, so Newt was the last major contender who hadn't gotten thrown his hat in the race yet in 2007, 2008. And for that cycle. And so she worked for him and, you know, it was an interesting experience and I'll let her tell the full story some other time, maybe next time she's on here. But at one point she was getting really frustrated. Um, I think it was that that cycle. Um, and she asked him, you know, look, are you going to run? Um, yeah, it was that cycle. Cause she did run in the 2012 cycle. Um, you know, are you going to run? Because like my wife knew people in Iowa who were like, will, you know, will will 
stay on the sidelines until he gets in if he's going to get in. But like, you know, people are lining up and whatever. And um, anyway, so my wife goes up to Newt and says, you know, Mr. Speaker, um, what are you thinking? Are you going to get back in the ring or something like that? And Newt says, Jessica, many politicians, many great men have spent their time in the wilderness. And he says, Reagan, Churchill, De Gaulle, and just let the sentence sort of dissipate like that with the uh, deep implication that Gingrich would be the next name in that list. And I remember my wife telling me about this and me, me just laughing um, because it's true. Those guys spent time in the wilderness. But you know who else spent time in the wilderness? Bud Gretnick. Fiona Thedopoulos, Sam Miner, all sorts of people whose names I just made up, um, who you've never heard of because they went into the wilderness and they didn't come out. You know, it's a it's a winner's bias sort of way of viewing things. And so getting back to Biden, you know, Biden's vision uh, by, by this, 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 this story that the Biden people are telling themselves about, you know, don't be a bedwetter. Everything's going to be okay. Um, Obama was in the same position. The thing is, is if you actually go and look at, you know, what these people think about Obama's advantages versus Biden's, they understand that, you know, Biden and Obama, just very different politicians in very different contexts. Biden, you know, uh, Obama was running against Mitt Romney. Um, a man that I think this country would have been so much better off if, if Mitt Romney had won in 2012. Um, I am, um, you know, I've had my disagreements with, with Romney over the years, but he's an honorable and deeply patriotic guy with of high moral character and um, who does his homework and takes things very seriously. And I think he would have been a great president. Um, but that's neither here nor there. He had disadvantages, disadvantages politically when running against the incumbent first African-American president of the United States. I don't think Mitt would dispute that for a moment. Also, Barack Obama was a much better natural politician, not just of Mitt Romney, but then of Joe Biden. And um, his ability to inspire uh, loyalty and passion from a lot of uh, young voters, uh, minority voters, low propensity young uh, minority uh, and young voters uh, is just wildly different than Joe Biden's, right? And um, that was the thing about his 2012 reelection. I mean, he got fewer votes in 2012 than in 2008, which, is, which was kind of a shocking thing because um, uh, that was not the historical norm. But what he did was he just turned up, he, he, he moved the pies in the pie chart of the of 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 um, of the electorate um wow words no come easy so like it, the way i remember it, in 2012 if the electorate had been i remember the electorate isn't the population right the electorate are the people who is the population of people who vote right so it's the subset of the total population um that is actually voting and so the at the time all the math said that if Mitt Romney, if the electorate was going to be, I think, 74% white, Romney would have won, would win big. If 
Um, and I could have these numbers off by a digit or two, but directionally they're right. Um, or maybe it was 76%, right? If the electorate was 76% white, Romney wins in a cakewalk. The electorate was 74%, whatever, or 73% or 71%, it would be like a, a Obama win. And Obama just did heroic work. Remember, he had people who he never rolled up his campaign after he got elected in 2008. He had people doing outreach in minority communities for, the, for his all four years of his uh, first term. And he just turned up the gain on the size of the non-white electorate. So it was like 74, 75%. I mean, it was like, it was like 70% white electorate because he just boosted, you know, members of his coalition. And that was enough um, to do it. I, I, you know, there are other ways to win re-election for Joe Biden than doing that, but I don't see a lot of them. And, you know, I get exhausted with this. And I, I know we talked about this on the, the meetup dispatch podcast, but like this Biden knows how to beat Trump garbage. No, he doesn't. He knew how to beat Trump in 2020 to the extent, if you knew it at all, it was about 2020 because there was a pandemic. He had a perfectly colorable excuse not to be campaigning a lot. Um, he could run, you know, from his basement or, you know, basically a front porch campaign. Uh, you can't do that now. And, and I think the thing that, that, that they didn't realize then, and they still don't realize now, I mean, I think the expert, you know, the guys behind the scenes who are really crunching this stuff for the campaign, they know all this, but like the way the sort of the talking heads talk about this stuff, the thing to remember is that the Biden coalition is pretty small, right? That's the personal approval stuff. The anti-Trump coalition is pretty large. The anti-Trump coalition was what got Donald Trump, what got Joe Biden elected. And it's his only chance to get reelected if he's the candidate is to expand the anti-Trump coalition. Because while, you know, it can be a mira statistical mirage where you can't really tell whether someone's anti-Trump or pro-Biden from some of these polls, just because the nature of the poll, the nature of the questions and the it's a binary choice stuff and all that nonsense. but. Um, like that's the only path that they've got um, is to have as big an anti-Trump coalition as possible, because if all they're relying on is a pro-Biden coalition, they're going to lose, you know, 40 states or something like that. Anyway, so I didn't mean to go on that long about that, about the GOP debate. I think it was the best one. Uh, I think NBC did a great job doing it. I thought the questions were good. I thought they were focused. I thought they did a good job managing people. It's a little unfair uh, to credit NBC entirely because it just helps to have a smaller field up there on the stage. I think Vivek Ramaswamy is a jackass, um, an ignorant jackass. Um, everyone wanted to talk about how terrible his, you know, invoking of Nikki's daughter was, and it was gross and stupid, you know, really like, Nikki's daughter a few years ago um, was on TikTok and somehow that shows that Nikki Haley is a hypocrite or a bad mom um, when Nikki's saying now that we need to get rid of TikTok. Um, it just logically doesn't track. And then you add the fact that <laughs> Nikki Haley's daughter is a 25-year-old married woman. Like, who the hell? I mean, it just it was incredibly stupid. And I totally agree with Nikki Haley that, you know, I totally sympathize with Nikki on the you're just scum thing and all that. 
but I actually think probably the worst thing that Vivek said was calling Zelensky a Nazi. Um, because that's just, first of all, absurd. Um, his characterization of like the um, undemocratic nature, the authoritarian nature of Ukraine was so tendentious. Look, I mean, Ukraine's, <laughs> Ukraine's in the middle of a friggin' war with a much bigger military, a much more powerful country. It was grotesquely invaded illegally and, um, and um, with tactics uh, that were you know, one war crime after another. So like, yeah, normal elections and democratic politics are kind of hard to do. And, you know, he's called and Vivek calls, uh, you know, Zelensky that, you know, talks about how he's hunting Christians or he's persecuting Christians. And look, there are there are smart criticisms to be made about on some of those fronts. But the smarter they are, the more modest the accusation gets, because in no way, shape or form is the the Jewish Nazi Zelensky government persecuting Christians qua Christians, right? There was one church that has deep ties to the Russian Orthodox Church. There are credible, I would say, utterly believable allegations that the church was um, colluding with Russia in various ways um, from providing intel or whatever um, that caused the state to shut down or, you know, largely shut down that denomination, which has lost millions of Ukrainian members for precisely these reasons. I have no desire and no credibility and no uh, particularly specialized knowledge to say anything negative about the sincere doctrine of the Russian Orthodox Church. If I were going to convert to Christianity, under no circumstances would it be the denomination or the branch of Christianity that I would convert to um, for reasons having to do with Russian history um, and, well, and Jewish history and history. But uh, the current Russian Orthodox Church is a monstrosity, at least in Russia. I don't, again, I'm not up to speed on how uh, outposts of the Russian Orthodox Church and other countries other than Ukraine are operating. I don't know if there are great schisms in all that. I mean, I feel like I've read some pieces along those lines, but again, I, I have no, I have no particular authority or expertise on this. Um, but I do know that, you know, there've been reports that within Russia, the Russian Orthodox church is helping, uh, the war effort in all sorts of execrable ways. Um, it's, it's leading the push for, you know, um, you know, getting young men to martyr themselves for mother Russia. Um, it is the last, the last report I saw was that it is setting up its own, uh, Wagner group style, private military group. Um, and the head of it is, is sort of a paid lackey of Vladimir Putin. Um, and I leave it to others of good faith within that faith, within, you know, the Russian Orthodox family, you know to hold their own leaders of their own official church accountable for the um, positions that they're taking. But like, I don't like Christian nationalism um, in the U S um, I, I generally don't like what nationalism does to all sorts of other 
theologies, dogmas, the Russian Orthodox Church's emphasis these days seems a lot more on the nation and a lot less on the soul. And I think it's grotesque. Anyway, that's me. People can argue with me. That's fine. But Vivek Ramaswamy's um, description of Ukraine was essentially Russian propaganda. And, you know, while coming up with a really dumb pot shot at Nikki Haley about her daughter being on TikTok a few years ago, as stupid and juvenile as that is, it's not in and of itself disqualifying to be for a presidential candidate. But the way he describes the world writ large and the and national security issues is disqualifying. I mean, like, like he is now, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty consistently an anybody but Trump guy in this race. But like, if he ended up being the nominee, um, I'd write in somebody else. There's no way I would vote for him. I think he's a, he's a, a dangerous buffoon. And I love, and I also think he's a coward, right? I mean, he, nobody on that stage talks a bigger game about their intellectual concern, their, their, their intellectual courage and their willingness to say hard truths and take on the establishment and everybody else is corrupt and paid for except for him. And he won't compromise in his fight to restore America to honor and trust and all this kind of stuff. And his claim at the his first answer of the night was about how the GOP is incompetent and bankrupt and, 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 uh, uh, you know, uh, the establishment is is destroying it and that Republicans are at sea and it's all because of Ronna McDaniel. Now, I got plenty of criticisms of Ronna McDaniel as the head of the RNC. I have criticisms of her going back, you know, since she dropped her middle name of Romney um, purely for political um, pandering reasons. I, I have no problem criticizing Ronna McDaniel, but the idea that she is anything but a symptom of the larger problems with the GOP is just ridiculous. I mean, it's hippie punching on the right in a way. Like I'll just, I, 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 I don't have the courage um, or the uh, seriousness to like mention Donald Trump's name and the damage that he has done to the party. Um, but I'll attack Ronna McDaniel, who was appointed by Trump. <laughs> um, is just, it just, I think it's as revealing as you need it to be. I thought it was DeSantis's best night. I thought it was Nikki's best night. I don't think a lot of people were watching. I personally find the spats between Nikki and DeSantis utterly uninteresting. And, you know, they're playing out all the time on Twitter with these people insisting that she's bought and paid for by China. No, he's bought and paid for by China. Uh, he wanted fracking. No, he didn't. All that kind of stuff it is all silly in my view. Um, I'm not saying there's not merit to one specific criticism or that there, the underlying fact that is being blown out of all perspective isn't worthy of scrutiny and criticism or anything like that. But both of these guys would be perfectly fine dealing with China. Both of them are, you know, you know, I, I, I prefer Nikki Haley in part because I think she would have a better chance of winning the general election than DeSantis. But I know there are a whole bunch of people out there who think that, you know, DeSantis is worse than Trump and that DeSantis is an effective Trump and blah, 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 blah. I've had lots of criticisms of DeSantis in the past. I will have more criticisms of him in the future. But at the end of the day, 
Um, you know, I don't like how he approaches and frames a lot of issues and all that kind of stuff, but I don't freak out in a state of panic or concern about the idea of him being president of the United States. I worry a little bit about what it could or might mean for conservatism or the, the future of the G GOP, but he's qualified to be president. Um, um, I think he's become a better candidate um, as he's realized that his early obsession with being very online and very Twitter focused um, and very reluctant to criticizing Trump as he's, as he's moved away from all that, he's become a more responsible candidate. I think he's got a real charm problem. You know, it's hard to get him to smile. Um, and then when he does smile, um, it kind of makes people feel unsafe. Um, but uh, in a heartbeat, I have no problem with him being president as an alternative to Trump and Tim Scott, you know, who doesn't like Tim Scott, but I still don't exactly understand why he's running. I get his, and I largely agree with the thrust of his point about how his personal story um, exposes the lie of the woke narrative of race and all that kind of stuff. That's great. That's great. It's not a reason really for me to vote for a president of the United States. Again, perfectly happy to have him be president of the United States over Trump or Ramaswamy, but uh, I think he should drop out. I think Christie should probably drop out as well. Um, I've, you know, I've been very critical of Christie in the past. I will be again, probably. Like, if I if I put it this way, if I thought he had the opportunity or the, the path to win it all and surpass Nikki and DeSantis and Trump and all that, I'd probably think about it differently. But it just seems to me that the most plausible path right now if the race did consolidate would be for Nikki to have a strong showing in Iowa and then conceivably win or get close to winning in New Hampshire and then win South Carolina. And then it's a, it's an open race and that would still be a heavy lift and very unlikely um, because, you know, Trump's Trump and he's got this huge lead, but I just don't see what the like pattern on the ground, what the path, what the playbook is for Christie at this point or, you know, Tim Scott. So I think it would be good if, if the race consolidated. Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their client, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit tnusa.com slash remnant. That's tnusa.com slash remnant. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her 
parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. It's just like you load the app and it says, what pictures do you want in your frame? And you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. I haven't talked any bit about Israel. I had a long Wednesday G-File, and if you were a subscriber to the Dispatch, you could read it. No, people are free, subscribers are free to forward um, newsletters to people who they think might be a good uh, prospect to subscribe themselves. You know, that's allowed. Word of mouth is our best marketing. So if you want to do that, please go ahead. But anyway, the gist of it was um, actually, it was actually inspired by um, a conversation I had with Adam, our mega producer, and I won't go too deep into it, but you know, there's all these debates out there about whether anti-Zionism is anti-Semitic, right? And, you know, you had that, if they've been written, I, I, we don't have to pick on Adam Serwer or anybody because they're all over the place, right? And I have no problem conceding that there are many anti-Zionists and certainly even more critics of Zionism, right? Because there can be a critic of the Zionist project who is not necessarily um, for dismantling Zionism entirely, right? But there are certainly lots of critics of, of Israel, lots of critics of Zionism, lots of, and even a good number of anti-Zionists who are not anti-Semitic, at least not in their own head, right? Not in their own heart. They don't think they're being anti-Semitic. And, and for some number of them, they aren't being anti-Semitic, right? They are making important distinctions and they are valuing certain things over other things. That's all fine, right? I get a little tired about the debate because the people who, a lot of the people who get most offended by the suggestion that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitic are people who won't condemn Hamas, right? Who um, won't acknowledge that when Hamas says from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, um, that that is a genocidal eliminationist program. Um, and so instead it has very much a feel from a lot of these people that they're upset about the anti-Semitism charge because it blunts the effectiveness of their anti-Zionism less than they actually um, care about whether or not they're anti-Jewish, right? Or whether they don't like Jews. And there's just an enormous amount of cognitive dissonance in a lot of these debates. But the point Adam made, which I ran with, is like, because we spend so much time with, with these arguments, sometimes stupidly, sometimes justifiably, whatever, but that debate takes up so much oxygen, it lets people who say they are against 
that, you know, it lets full-throated anti-Zionists off the hook for something else, which is that they're literally saying Israel shouldn't exist. And I mean, I mean, I remember Richard Cohen, Washington Post columnist, who I don't know if he's still alive. 20 years ago, he did a really dumb column about how Israel was a mistake, right? That is like, Richard Cohen is not anti, was not anti-Semitic. He's a Jewish guy. But like, this is the argument of anti-Zionists. There was a mistake. It's, you know, whether you buy the full-throated settler colonialism stuff or something else, this idea that it was a mistake, it's a bad neighborhood, Jews are not welcome there. Um, the only way they can carve out a life is by being unfair to other people who have, you know, equal claim to this land or that land. I mean, again, all of these things are contested and I'm not necessarily subscribing to them. I'm simply describing them. But no other country, like if, if, if we were having a, a meal, like if we went to a dinner and you never met me before and I just went on a tirade about, you know what? Ecuador, it's just got to go, right? Ecuador was a mistake. Um, you know, Jordan, why is Jordan there? There's no reason for Jordan to be there. You know, this was just a historical error that needs to be remedied, right? No other country is subject to this kind of elite academic, not just accepted in academia, but celebrated in academia. C courses are taught on basically this argument that anti-Zionism is, is, uh, is a morally compelling requirement when thinking seriously about international affairs and all that kind of stuff. Books are written about anti-Zionism and all this kind of stuff. No other country is subjected to this routine normalization of the idea that it shouldn't exist. You know, and as I wrote in the G-File, uh, people think that like, there are a lot of people who think that like all the other countries in the Middle East are these ancient, legitimate nation states that have often, you know, authentic roots going back millennia in the region. And there are a few that that's definitely true of, right? Like Morocco. Egypt. Egypt is arguably the oldest nation state on earth. Definitely true of some countries, right? It's not true of Saudi Arabia. It's not true of Qatar. It's not true of Jordan. It's not true of UAE or Kuwait, right? A lot of these places were simply creations of, among other people, Winston Churchill, right? Because most of the Middle East was under the control of the Ottoman Empire for a really long time. And before that, other empires, like the Persian Empire and the Abbasids, or however you pronounce that, and a dozen others, right? A lot of these regions, you can say that there are certain dynasties or certain tribes that have deep roots in some places, which is true in some places, not so much in other places, right? Because a lot of these places were conquered by various armies, and those armies then imposed, dum-dum-dum, settler colonialism. And so you have you know, a polyglot, diverse region, nothing, nothing wrong with any of that, right? Meanwhile, Israel, Israel's older than a lot of these countries. I mean, modern Israel, right? I mean, Israel's founded in, was it 48? And there are a bunch of countries, there are dozens of countries, I think, in sub-Saharan Africa that were created in the 1960s. But there are a bunch of countries in the Middle East that are about the same age as Israel, as modern Israel. Meanwhile, as a historical matter, you know, if you're going to tell me that, you know, okay, fine. So technically there wasn't um, a country called Jordan, but the Hashemite throne there has ties going back a gazillion years. You know who has ties going back a gazillion years in Israel? Israel. 
there was a Jewish kingdom, a Hebrew kingdom, an Israeli kingdom, where uh, in the general vicinity of where Israel is today, what, 3,000 years ago, 5,000 years? I mean, like, this is a thing. But because a bunch of Israelis are descended from victims of the Holocaust um, who migrated there with the explicit desire to go back to a homeland that they thought was historically theirs and that would keep them safe, Israel gets dismissed as settler colonialism and, you know, an extension of basically white supremacy stuff. It's all garbage, right? I mean, I honestly think it's garbage. It doesn't mean every individual point or observation is wrong and you can contend with some of them all you like. That's fine. But no other country is singled out as deserving of being erased from the map by polite society. Now, Vladimir Putin says that Ukraine should be erased from the map, you know, in one way or another. And most of the people who are proud anti-Zionists, not all of them, I mean, there's like Glenn Greenwald, who has zero problem with erasing Israel and very few problems with erasing Ukraine. But, you know, most of these people, um, they recognize that what Putin is doing is outrageous. Now, Ukraine has a deep and abiding history as a people and as a nation. It's more complicated, right? Because it was like the, like the Middle East was controlled by the Ottoman Empire. Ukraine had these brief periods where it was truly sovereign and independent, but then it was often controlled or divided up between, you know, various empires, the Polish, the, the Russian or whatever. And I don't, I don't bring this up to belittle the idea of Ukrainian nationality. I'm entirely in favor of Ukrainian sovereignty and Ukrainian nationality. Um, I just bring it up to say it's, it's complicated, right? And the modern state of Ukraine, certainly the modern democratic state of Ukraine is really young, you know, much younger than Israel. Um, and even the sort of concept of Ukraine as a nation state, it doesn't go back to the Bible. I can put it that way. Okay. And yet you constantly will hear people just sort of say, you know, they don't like to say, you know, Israel will be erased from the map, even though lots of people refuse to put Israel on the map, right? I mean, the Chinese government has uh, started erasing Israel from its maps. The UN, every couple of years, there's some, you know, scandal or controversy because someone refuses to put Israel on a map. This happens all the time. That's what anti-Zionism means, right? Zionism stripped of all the clever wordplay and, you know, anti-Semitic and philo-Semitic is just basically the idea that, you know, Israel was the home of the Jews. It's where Jews originally came from. It is the place where they should have a state of their own and that Jews should be welcome there and safe there. That's it. Um, and if you take the anti-Zionist view, you're saying you're against those things. Not everybody's anti-Zionism requires them to favor eliminating or eradicating or expelling all of the Jews who are there, some very committed, decent people who are anti-Zionists merely want a flood of Palestinians to come back into the country who would then basically vote the Jews out of power and then maybe stop voting entirely, right? There, and this is my big problem with a lot of the, the, the peace-loving, non-terrorist supporting anti-Zionists is they never have a plausible explanation to, for my purposes or to my satisfaction of how this would exactly work. Um, you know, if you make the entire area one big multi-ethnic state, democratic state, Jews will get outvoted. A lot of Jews will leave. I think a lot of Jews would get killed too, but that's a different point. But Palestinians 
have not shown a real propensity for democracy. You know, they had elections in Gaza. Hamas got elected and elections were over. They had elections in the West Bank. Mahmoud Abbas got elected. He is now completing, I just looked it up the other day, the 16th year of his four-year term. And when you bring up these sort of practical objections, never mind like the, the meta and the philosophical objections, uh, you know, people roll your eyes on you at you and say, well, what other choice is there? Well, the other choice is like, I don't know, Jordan could take Palestinians. Palestinians could embrace a Martin Luther King style policy of nonviolence, which would really work on Israelis. Palestinians could get to work on dealing with their own problems in ways that build trust. And I'm not talking about, you know, the average Palestinian, you know, guy in the street. I'm talking about the Palestinian leadership. Hamas is explicit about, you know, its goals and ambitions. And I personally think one of the most anti-Palestinian, bigoted anti-Palestinian positions you can have is to say that Hamas is the authentic voice of the Palestinian people. And this is one of my big problems, right? Is like people want to have it both ways. They want to say it's outrageous to say the Palestinians are terrorists, which I agree with to a large extent, right? But they also want to be able to say Hamas is the authentic voice of the Palestinian people. Which is it? If they're the authentic voice of the Palestinian people, then they are all terrorists. If they are a uh, criminal gang that exploits average Palestinians and um, steals from them, and they steal a lot from them, um, and uses them as human shields, then Hamas is not the authentic voice of the Palestinian people. And it is just amazing how many people want to have this both ways, right? They want to say that it's, that it's outrageous to infer that normal Palestinians are in favor of raping and murdering babies and kids and old ladies and all that. But at the same time, they want to say that Hamas had no choice and that they are um, legitimately expressing the, fr expressing the frustration of the Palestinian people. Pick a lane, dude. Um, similarly, you know, you have all these people. It's amazing, you know, like there was a screening at the Holocaust Museum in L.A. And there was this huge sort of pro-Palestinian freak out about it where they insist that the videos. I remember these are the videos from from Hamas terrorists own GoPro cameras and from home security footage and CCT footage of these people attacking, right? And, and um, you know, you can see faces, you can see bodies, you can see everything, right? And the people who are angry want to simultaneously say Hamas was utterly justified in what it did and they refuse to condemn anything that it did. But at the same time, they want to say that the evidence of what they did is propaganda. I think some of this is the result of the fact that at least some people realize that um, accurately conveying what Hamas did is, is, is shameful and embarrassing to the Palestinian cause. But some of it is, I think, that just these people don't want to acknowledge it. They want to gaslight people. You can't say it's all strategy because it's, it's, it's like a mind virus out there. I mean, there are these, you know, those those websites that just do these, you know, like stop anti-Semitism, who record people tearing down posters and stuff, you know, the number of people tear, tear down these posters and say these are lies, or this is propaganda. I think they sincerely believe it. I mean, they're just completely wrong in a profound evil denial. But I don't think they are agents of a well thought out PR strategy from the top. These are people who have been 
uh, brainwashed and hypnotized and, and, and are, cannot deal with their own figurative moral culpability for supporting people who did the most unbelievably heinous things and took pleasure in it. You remember this, this one Hamas guy, who, you know, texts his dad and said, dad, I've strangled, I think it was nine Jews. I did it with my own bare hands. I, I hope you're proud of me. You know, I mean, like, like these are the people that these people are defending and getting outraged. If you suggest that it's anti-Semitic to defend people whose purpose is just to go out and kill Jews. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So I think things are going to get uglier before they get um, better. Um, on Glop Pod made an impassioned case for people to um, go to this big pro-Israel rally. I think he's right that it's important. I hate rallies. I hate crowds. Um, I also have a longstanding professional commitment. It's going to be very difficult for me to go, but I am tempted to go to figure out if I can go. What did I write down? I wrote, I remember I took a note about, um, some about David Brooks. So I'll close with that. It's funny, like being really, really tired, like bone tired, um, in a weird way, it kind of helps me just talk on an even keel right now. Um, I'm not doing a lot of histrionic stuff. Um, at least it feels that way. Maybe you guys think I'm completely unhinged. It's entirely possible. Yeah. So the David Brooks conversation, I think it's pretty obvious. I'm a fan of David Brooks. I mean, one of the dead giveaways was how many times I said I'm a fan of David Brooks. But beyond that, um, you know, I think he's on a really sort of interesting journey. And I could have talked to him for a while longer. You know, I didn't even get into like some of his, you know, religious migration stuff. Um, but we had a, we had a disagreement that a bunch of people keyed off of in the comments and some of those people sent me emails and it relates to blowback I've gotten on, um, Twitter and elsewhere on other fronts lately. And so I just want to address it. I can't remember what the, who said it or what the exact quote was, but David invoked some thinker who said that he was on the paraphrasing this other guy who I can't remember it was that he was on the most rightward edge of the left wing sensibility, something like that. And I took objection to, I, he was and he was like, I think you're sort of on that same trajectory. And the way David means it, I think that's a fair accusation or, 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 or claim about me. Um, uh, I don't think it's, 100% accurate, even the way David means it, but like the way David means it, I think it's to totally sort of understandable and defensible that he would think that I'm sort of in the same place. I don't like the, fr I didn't like the phrase and a lot of people 
didn't, and I, I'm not saying I was very good at explaining it, um, but a lot of people um, didn't get my reasons for it. Like, I'm much more comfortable with the term liberalism than I ever was, in part because so many on the left have abandoned it. But for me, the left, which again, I think is a, the left-right thing is a deeply complicated uh, of problem with of of limited utility these days um in all sorts of ways but i still think it has a important historical etymological explanatory power it's a useful term absent a better one that doesn't mean it's a great term same thing with the right and i really struggled with this when i was writing liberal fascism because like left and right are complicated concepts when you start to try to apply ideologically serious and consistent litmus tests, right? Because people, positions have changed a lot over the decades and or centuries really. Anyway, so for those of you who don't know, very quickly, um, the term left and right, they come from the French estates general um where the more radical you were um the more you sat to the left right it was like one of those color-coded spectrum things and uh the more aligned you were with the throne or the church the more you moved to the right you sat to the right and so it was um in many ways, a metric of radicalism versus um, reaction as much as it was of liberalism versus conservatism. And we maybe we'll do a whole show one day on the seating chart of the French assembly. But um, one of the points that uh, one of my favorite writers, Eric von Knut Ledin, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, was fond of making is, is that that left right understanding of the political spectrum was really a continental thing. It wasn't even really a British thing. In the British Parliament, um, the seating chart, not that seating charts should have like this, you know, august authority in how we're thinking about, you know, profound issues about the role of the individual in the state um, and freedom of liberty, freedom of religion and whatnot. Right. But, you know, just to make the point, the 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 seating chart of the. Of the House of Commons in, in England was um, and I could be messing up which side, but it gets the point is that you sat on the side, you sat on the side of the government when your party was in power. Right. And you sat on the opposite side when your party was out of power. And so you were on the, it was basically the room was divided between yeas and nays to the prime minister's party. At least that's my recollection of it. Someone I'm sure will correct me if I'm getting that wrong. It feels a little wrong, but you get the point. It had nothing to do with like um, permanent categories of class and caste, the way, you know, a seating chart divided between uh, blooded nobility and um, the church versus radical philosophs and whatnot, right? Just, just completely different understanding. And in America, that America comes from the Anglo tradition, not the French tradition. And so even the whole left-right thing has always been something of an imposition on 
American Anglo Anglo American categories of political thought. That said, it doesn't mean that the terms are meaningless. Um, I'm very much on Yuval's team about this, about how you can get a better understanding of the American left and right from the debates between Thomas Paine and Edmund Burke. And this was, you know, this was his book called The Great Debate that really comes out of his um, PhD dissertation. I, I think I reviewed it for commentary. Um, and um, part of his point um, is that the and you've got longtime listeners of this know where I'm going with this. So I, I won't do it for very long. Is that the difference between left and right is in America in the Anglo-American tradition is more of a difference between metaphors of space versus metaphors of direction. The, the, the left impulse is to march people forward, all of the people forward to the sunny uplands of history, that there is a destination for the people, a, you, you know, utopia of one degree or another, and that everybody needs to be marched in that direction. That's the sort of why I've always disliked the moral equivalent to war arguments that William James introduced into American politics um, and, and American philosophy. And I should be clear about this, you know, because I, I talk about, you know, my new attitude about a lot of intellectual history stuff. I don't think that James was the first person to talk about organizing society along military or militaristic lines. Um, that's a very, 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 very old idea going back at least to Sparta, if not well before that. I mean, I think the Etruscans probably were, you know, they're the ones who first came up with the fasces as a symbol. It's a very old idea, right? So I'm not saying that James is the originator of a novel idea, but he articulated in a way that was fluent for the, for the intellectual climate at the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century. And it's this, this idea that we should all be moving together, right? This is why I've always thought, I've always had such problems with the idea that if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem, right? That there are no safe harbors from politics because we all have to move as one. It's the cult of unity. It's the cult of direction. Um, it's a certain cult of the state as the, as the shepherd or father of all of the people that is going to bring us to a specific place together, right? It's one of the reasons I'm hostile to a lot of the arguments about inequality. Meanwhile, the metaphor is about space, which you get out of people like Burke, is that it's the job of the government to be essentially um, a watchman, you know, or the gardener of the English garden, right, who works hard to keep poachers out, to keep the rabbits from eating the vegetables, um, and works very hard at making it so that all of the diverse different inhabitants of the garden can live to be the, have the freedom and the resources to be the best versions of themselves. But you're never going to get the carrots to be cantaloupes, right? You're never going to get the blueberries to be strawberries. But that's okay, because they're all equal in the eyes of the gardener as residents of the garden. Now, I am not trying to get into sort of biological essentialism, right? The metaphor starts to break down when you're talking about people to a certain extent. But my point is, is that the conservative impulse is to talk about zones of liberty, right? And, and concern itself with the proper functioning of the state 
to do the things that it's supposed to do without getting into the business of the things that it's not supposed to do. Um, I would, I'll get a very angry email from a friend of mine if I don't point out that you can get a lot of this from uh, the British philosopher Michael Oakeshott's discussion of enterprise associations versus civic associations. And the basic idea there is broadly the same, you know, is that there are, that, that the role of government and, and, and often other institutions is, it depends on the institution, right? An enterprise institution is different than a civic institution, but, or a civic association. But, the, but my point is, the, the, it's not the government's job to do the things that aren't the government's job. And the left-wing approach, the Thomas Paine approach, is to say, no, all of society is the canvas upon which the state must paint. All of society is uh, deserving of being delivered to the sunny uplands, um, and it is the job of the state to see that this happens. And there's a lot of stuff that gets filled in later by, you know, Marxists and Hegel and whoever that, you know, expand on this very old idea that predates pain and predates the founding, just like almost all these other old ideas. And, um, you know, it's, as I often point out, when Mussolini talks about, you know, his definition of fascism was everything within the state, nothing outside of the state. He wasn't describing an or Orwellian 1984 dystopia, not in his own mind. What he saw it as is like an all-inclusive state where no child is left behind, where everybody is pulling oars in the same direction towards the same goal for the state, and we're not going to um, abandon anybody, right? That's a very Thomas Paine way. Now, Paine and Mussolini were very different people for all sorts of obvious reasons, but why am I going down this memory lane thing here? It's simply just to say this, I don't have the left wing, the leftish tendency or whatever the phrase that David used. I, I still associate, and maybe I'm wrong, right? But I don't associate that the left inclination um, with liberalism, right? I mean, this is liberalism rightly understood is a system that gives people space to do what they want. Liberalism is a system that um, recognizes the personal autonomy of individuals, but also the autonomy of groups, groups that may be at odds with the larger group about how they want to live, right? Because one of the things that gets left out in a lot of our conversations about, you know, what a free society looks like is that in a free society, a lot of people don't want to be isolated individuals, they want to be members of groups or communities or whatever you want to call it, collectives, you know, whatever adjective you want. Um, and they want the freedom to live conservatively. And then there are other people who want the freedom to live in groups decadently and everything in the middle. And, um, and that's one of the reasons I like federalism and subsidiarity and localism is that it's the best way to come up with different ways of living that satisfy the most people. And so that's part of liberalism too. And yes, you can take liberalism to logic chopped extremes that are antithetical to my vision of what a liberal society should look like. And we can have nice conversations about John Rawls another day, but um, liberalism is about giving people space 
to be who they want to be, how they want to be them. And um, while at the same time recognizing the rights of other people. And so a lot of that is what, you know, critics now call procedural liberalism. And sure, some of it is procedural liberalism. Um, but some of it is like deeply moral. And it doesn't rest on this idea of imposing a vision on how to live on people who don't want to live that way. And when I say people, I mean communities as well. And there are times when the internal logic of liberalism requires smashing up or, or, or doing legal or literal violence to some communities, right? That's ultimately the reason why the federal government had to go in um, and, and forcibly end Jim Crow was that these were um, democratic tyrannies. And um, I'm in favor of a lot of freedom for communities to live the way they want to live. But one of the things that they have to recognize is that every member of their community has the right to exit. They have the right to go someplace else. And that their community standards cannot violate sort of fundamental constitutional rights. Um, and Jim Crow did that, right? So sometimes, you know, there are limits to my federalism. There's a limiting principle to all of my positions. And I, we can always come up with a hypothetical about where my, my sort of stated philosophical preferences um, uh, run into trouble. That's fine. I, I wish more people were willing to acknowledge that there are limits to their principles. And so anyway, the, the reason I objected to this, again, I should have looked up the phrase, um, the, this being on the rightmost side of this left wing sensibility or tendency is I, I don't like the left wing approach to these things. And I don't see myself as just simply being a critic um, and a gut check or a conscience of being pulled along in a left-wing direction, right? I mean, this is the famous Hayek line, the problem with conservatives is that they um, tend to get pulled in directions not of their own choosing. This is one of the things I could not stand about Sam Tannenhaus's understanding. Apparently his biography is finally done of Bill Buckley and coming out at some point in the next year. But I, I remember in interviews, he had said that, you know, the best thing about William F. Buckley is he made liberalism better. and and you know, Tannenhaus at that time didn't mean liberalism the way I'm talking about liberalism. He meant progressivism, right? He made, he was, a, you know, his, his, like Buckley was good for being a, um, you know, an ombudsman um, about progressive overreach. And that's not what Buckley was. He was, I mean, he was that, but he was other things as well. And I, and so um, I have, that's what I mean when I say I have increasing comfort in describing myself as a liberal, but I cannot describe myself as a left winger and I never will. Right. Um, I, I'm just not morally offended by income inequality. Um, I'm offended by poverty. I'm offended by unearned wealth, but those are different things. There will always be some people who are richer than other people. And I'm sure there are plenty of prudential reasons why you want to have it be desirable to have less of a gap between the richest and the poorest. But the answer to that is by making the poor people richer. It's not by making the rich people poorer. And I mean, that's just my 
basic approach. My, my aesthetically, I'm just not offended by income inequality the way I think definitionally the left is. And you go down a long list of things. Um, I'm not. I'm not. Prof- and, and this is and this is one of the reasons why we get into the problem of left versus right these days. I am not profoundly offended by people who are living their lives wrong. Um, I'm perfectly happy to say I think they're living their lives wrong, but I'm not going to say, and therefore the state needs to get in the way and make them live their lives the right way. And I see the left and big chunks of the illiberal right these days who disagree with me on that. And, um, and that's why I, I, you know, I have real trouble calling myself right wing these days too for the reasons that I've just been talking about is that what what defines the right wing increasingly at least among the loudest people out there has less and less to do with actual conservatism as I understand it and more and more to do with you know the same sort of populist and uh illiberal um ideas that are consuming the left they're just for a different tribe and that's why I'm very remnanty, right? Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The reason why I bring this up is because someone commented that I, you know, of course I, you know, there's something about how I just can't give up my party, right? Even though my party is garbage. And um, if, and if, and on Twitter, I've been criticizing a great number of people, as you might imagine, over all of this Israel stuff. And it's amazing how many people tell me I can't do that anymore because I'm not on the right, I'm not, I'm not on the conservative team and these people are my allies. And so I should just agree with them. This is what you asked for when you abandoned Trump. This is what you get, you know, when you left Fox for CNN who are you to criticize these people? You're their ally. You're their aide. You want them. You love Joe Biden, yada, 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 yada. And some of these people are just trolls and robots and whatever. But some of them, I think, are like sincere, real people who are just saying what I believe to be profoundly idiotic things. And so I just like the reason why this is in my head is because I thought that the reaction to my reaction with David was of a piece with this reaction that I'm getting constantly elsewhere. And so I just want to be real clear, like none of this has to do with the Republican Party. I mean, it does as a like I'm a pundit and I, I talk about elections and politics for a living and all of that. And and I want the Republican Party to be a viable, sane, right of center party because I think we need at least one in this country. But my refusal to like leap full on into sort of the left wing coalition and embrace identity politics and and massive government spending and, 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 you know, the green new deal, whatever, you know, the reason I like people think I have to be a Biden Democrat if I'm criticizing Republican. Um, and some people think, and, and I, when I say I have to be a Biden Democrat, I mean, I get this from the left and the right. 
and to me, I mean, I, I, I don't know how many times I have to talk about how much I hate popular front politics and how many times I have to say this podcast is called a remnant for a reason. I'm not about the team thing. I'm on the dispatches team. I'm on my family's team. In this context right now, I'm on Israel's team. But even that, even saying I'm on Israel's team makes me a little uncomfortable, even though I think objectively it's, it's a fair description. I just, I'm not a team guy, right? Not when it comes to like this stuff, not when it comes to like the actual ideas that I believe. I'm just not a team guy, right? I'm not like, even if I was given a column in the New York Times or the Washington Post, or I was up for an ambassadorship which I'm never going to be an ambassador, but you know, whatever it, or I was up for a tenured position at Harvard or any of these things. It just doesn't work for me to then take a different position on issues that I think I have the right position on. And this is something that people have struggled. I've, I've struggled to explain and people have struggled to understand for years now. I can't tell you how many people told me, in simple terms or really dumbly complex terms, how Hillary was so bad that I had to, in effect, lie about how great Donald Trump was. This is what got me into trouble, right? Is that I wouldn't lie. And I, I hate, I resent, powerfully resent being put in the position of the scolding, eat your spinach, you know, ethics guy. I really do. That's never been my role. And it's never something I've been super comfortable with. But like, I'm not going to become a protectionist because Donald Trump is a protectionist. Um, I'm not going to stop being a free trader because protectionism is now a bipartisan thing, right? I mean, like, I, I don't know how to make this any more simple. Like, my only, <laughs> my fundamental job is to tell the truth as I see it. And I, you know, and you don't have to be a complete jackass. You don't have to be, you don't have to go for the most offensive or controversial truths all the time or whatever. And you don't have to like abandon all civility or politeness or open-mindedness about people who disagree with you about things, right? You don't have to let being a truth teller become this mind virus that leads you into looking for the most controversial truths possible and then screaming them in an undignified way that doesn't, doesn't persuade people you disagree with um, to come your way, right? I mean, there are all sorts of things I could shout about, like the transgender issue that I think are true, but that I don't think would help in any way move the deba debate in a constructive way or be generous of spirit um, and open-hearted towards sincere people who are on the other side of this kind of thing, right? That's my only point about this, is that you don't have to become um, a provocateur just because you've made truth-telling important to yourself. But like this idea that I, that it's, it's a, there's so much projection on this point. Um, the number of people who insist that I'm doing X or Y so I can stay relevant, right? Both critics from the right and critics from the left will say this to me all the time, um, that relevance is so important to me. And all I hear is that relevance is so important to them that they cannot imagine that my motivations are different. 
I don't mean to sound super defensive about this, but like I can't do this with individual tweeters and I'm not going to do this in the comments section. And it it's this thing that will not die. So every, you know, now and then I feel like, you know, if I'm not for myself, who will be? I'm not doing any of this stuff out of out of a, a burning desire to stay relevant inside the Republican Party or to, you know, or any of that. Do I want the, the Republican Party to be salvaged? Of course I do. I also want the Democratic Party to be salvaged from, you know, the the pro Hamas elements in the Democratic Party. You know, do I care more about the Republican Party than the Democratic Party? Because the Republican Party is the conservative party. And I think the country needs a conservative party. Yes. Full disclosure. Yes. Do I have more conflicts with personalities? Because I know more people in the Republican Party and I know more journalists who have a different who are friends, who have a different job description about how they look at these things. Yeah, those are there are all those human conflicts in there. But the, all I can say at this point is, is like, if I'm making an argument on the merits about something, if I am criticizing anti-Semitism on the left or on the right, and you come at me saying, I can't do that because I need to be this kind of ally or that kind of ally, or I'm part of this team and not that team now, um, all you're doing is revealing to me how you think about these things. And you are not telling me anything about how I think about these things. If Joe, you know, Joe Biden is right, is more right about Ukraine than Republic, most re prominent Republicans are. I mean, um, I shouldn't say that Nikki Haley is more right than Joe Biden is, but like Joe Biden is more right about Ukraine than Donald Trump is. That does not make me a Democrat to say that. And the number of people who think I'm not allowed to say X or Y because I have to take the political considerations into account, just don't get where I'm coming from. And that's, that's all I'm trying to say. And this was the argument I got into with um, Tom Nichols, right? About, you know, sort of the faction of the, the sort of faction of anti-Trump rightists that he is part of. And I like Tom Nichols. I know there were a lot of people who had real problems with him, all that, and I obviously had disagreements with him, but like, I think he's a good guy. Um, the part of the sort of the never Trump right, whatever label you want to put on it, um, that Tom is part of has sincere disagreements with me about how to think about these things. I, I'm friends with Charlie Sykes. I like Charlie Sykes. Charlie Sykes is more than Bill Crystal. I'm old friends with Bill Crystal. I like Bill Crystal. I respect Bill Crystal. I have disagreements with all of them, right? But one of the disagreements that they have expressed at one point or another in the last few years is that I don't think about these things in political enough terms that I don't, you know, realize it's a binary choice. I don't realize that criticizing Biden helps Trump, or I don't realize that making a big deal about actual issues that are bad for Democrats um, doesn't solve the most immediate problem, which is keeping Donald Trump out of the White House. And from a certain perspective, they're right, right? They're right in that criticism. But what they want me to do, I don't, want, I don't want to pick on Charlie and Tom and Bill, but like this brand of criticism, which I get quite a bit, what they want me to do is sort of run my writing and arguments through a kind of uh, political filter and think about this stuff with, with this broader political context in mind. Now, obviously, I think about this broader political context a lot, and I write about this broader political context a lot. And I'm not saying it's completely out of mind, you know, 
but it's just not how I approach these things. Like I personally think that if you're, if you spent 25 years being pro-life and now that that position is hurting the Republican party, you should still be pro-life, right? I just don't see how now that doesn't mean you can't rethink tactics and, you know, it's a long game and it's a long struggle and all that kind of stuff. But if you're passionately pro-life, the idea that somehow election results should cause you to change your perspective on that, I just think is wrong. And this is a problem with a lot of never Trump people. This is a problem with a lot of pro Trump people. Sean Hannity was complaining the other night about how outrageous it was that Democrats want people to believe that Republicans want to ban all forms of abortion. You know, I get it. You know, it's like technically not true, but like that's a complaint that Sean is offering solely because the, the charge is politically effective because of the things Republicans have done. My own view on the abortion stuff is like, and, and anyone who's read me or listened to me talk about abortion um, and pro-life stuff, I, I think I've been pretty consistent on this. I've always, you know, I, every now and then I would get dinged by people for saying I'm essentially a pro-lifer or I'm a de facto pro-lifer um, rather than just saying I'm a pro-lifer. And, and the, the reason for that is, is like I... I get the intellectual arguments about why birth, you know, begins with fertilization or, you know, very early on in the process and all that kind of stuff. I am incapable of mustering the moral revulsion over someone taking the, the morning after pill, um, which is essentially a very early stage abortifacient. I just, I, I get the arguments, you know, and I've, I read and really enjoyed Ramesh's book on abortion, Party of Death. Um, I get that it is a full, as a matter of medical science, it is, it's got the full complement of DNA. It is a, a distinct human entity. I do not like the idea of the state deciding what humans count and what humans don't. Um, and I find that intellectually very compelling, but I've never been able to muster the kind of moral revulsion that I think fuels a lot of sincere pro-lifers about very early stage abortion. And that I feel for late stage abortions. But what I've always believed was that Roe v. Wade was garbage constitutional law. And I still believe that. And I think it was good that Roe was overturned. And I've always said that this should be a state issue. It should be sent back to the states. I've always quoted, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg talking about how it should have been sent back to the states or left to the states, um, that there was a consensus forming and all of that. And I still believe that, which is why I don't have my hair on fire one way or the other about uh, how abortion is playing out in these elections since uh, Dobbs. You know, again, as an analytical matter, bad for Republicans, definitely. Really bad for pro-lifers, definitely. Happy to, I'm not, whether I'm happy to say that or not is not the issue. I'm, I'm happy to tell you the truth as I see it on that. And I just think it's true, right? But I also don't think having a bunch of states scramble to figure out how they want to regulate abortion is in and of itself terrible if you actually believe that Roe was bad and that it's a state issue. This is what's going to happen. The fact that Republicans and pro-lifers were unprepared for it um, as a matter of sort of malpractice is, you know, worth worthy of notice. You can like this is my point. You can tell who's who, whose approach to these issues is political rather than fundamentally philosophical or moral 
by how they change their views on things like abortion based upon larger political changes, right? Um, I'm not saying I'm perfect or blameless or without sin about letting politics infect my head, but like the takeaway I had from the rise of Trump was like, okay, I'm not welcome on this team unless I lie about this guy. So I won't have a team. And I hadn't really realized how deeply on a team I was. And what a lot of other people want me to do is say, okay, then join this team. And my response is, I don't want a team. I, I, you know, that's not how I see it. That's where I come down on this. And I just have this, I, I did not mean to do this this long. I got to get off of here. But like, if you're going to criticize my positions, please just, that's fine. I am often wrong about things. And I, there are all sorts of things I do not know. But um, if you're going to ascribe my, what you perceive to be my errors out of the corrupting influence of my partisan allegiances or my desire to be relevant or popular with this group or that group, um, keep it to yourself. Cause I just, you know, the, again, the one thing I am the greatest single expert on in the world is my own motivations. And, um, and very rarely do people get close to understanding what my motivations um, are for things when they get really mad at me. Um, I think precisely because they're mad at me and because they're mad at me, they have to think it, it's, it's like this conspiratorial mindset, right? When things are disruptive to your cognitive peace, you have to think there are evil forces somewhere responsible for them. And we're going to talk, I recorded this episode of the remnant, uh, this week, which will air next week. Um, uh, with this Mike Rothschild guy who wrote the Jewish space leaders book. And we get into some of that there. Um, anyway, uh, I had other things I was going to talk about, but I, I rambled too long. I apologize. Um, thanks for listening. Uh, we'll put it in the show notes. I'm doing this, um, auctioning off this meal with me, um, for Jake Tapper's, uh, charity for vets, uh, check it out. Um, got to come to DC and we can figure out a date and all that kind of stuff, but it's for a good cause. And I'm not hideous to watch consume food, become a subscriber. If you can, that would be great. Thanks to everybody who showed up at the dispatch meetup. Um, again, it's, it's kind of exhausting for me in a sort of emotional, psychological way to, um, hear so many nice things from people. Um, but I'm glad to have heard them now. And um, I'm really, it's really edifying and reassuring to know that we play such an important role in so many people's lives. Other than that, I'll talk to you next time. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.